Well, amen. What a wonderful time of singing this morning. Um, Today we continue our um, exposition through Romans 8. And uh, one one thing I was reminded of this week, uh, because we're taking a big chunk this week. Verse 28, that's it. We're looking at one verse, and I was... uh, I was thinking, my goodness, we're never going to get through this book, I mean, or this chapter, much less. And uh, I was reminded of a, a pastor I met a few years ago, uh, Saidi, called him Pastor Saidi, he's from Zambia, and um, we called him the Black Panther of pastors, because his, his accent was just like the Black Panther in the Marvel movies, but anyway, it was kind of neat, and you know, he's... It's just not fair, these men with cool accents that can preach, because, you know, it just sounds so much better than we do. But anyway, uh, I was talking with him, and he had been preaching expositionally through the book of Ephesians, and he's like, yes, after our first year, we got through chapter one. I was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> All right, so I don't feel so bad, but uh, one of the things that, that you learn as you, as you begin expositionally preaching through books, you reach you reach passages, it's like... We have to camp out here. Um, and looking forward, we, we should get through. If I continue preaching this week and two more weeks, we'll be done with chapter eight. Two verses next week, then Seth preaches. And if, I'm, if Andy's not able to back, I will finish the rest of chapter eight in a whole sermon, I promise. But this week, we are, we are just grabbing verse 28. Um, and uh, I've titled this sermon, it's the Affirmation of Providence. But um, Romans chapter, verse 28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Join me in prayer. Lord God, as we, uh, as we approach this passage, Lord, I pray that you would reveal the truth to us that you have um, so firmly planted in this this one verse, Lord, may may we see you and 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 just your amazing providence shine through this this one short verse today, Lord. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, um, in the 17th and 18th century, there was this. Uh, it was during a time of many discoveries in science and mathematics. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton was like the, the, the quintessential mind of the age. He was like the, one of the smartest men. He made all these advancements in physics. But this time of, of is, they were exploding in all these discoveries we were finding. And it became known as the age of enlightenment. Uh, as man was beginning to learn all these, these, these wonderful things. And... Um, this kind of leached its way into the church, and it's a new teaching developed within the church. And it became very popular in Europe and North American colonies. It made its way over. In fact, a lot of our founding fathers were kind of held to this belief. And that belief was deism. Now, deism taught that God created the world, and he essentially abandoned it. Imagine if you would like a clockmaker. He builds this clock, this beautiful clock, very intricate. Everything works together. And, and, and he sets it all in motion, just as he had designed, then he puts it on a shelf and walks away. That was really the teaching of deism, that God has created everything, beautiful and wonderful, he's made it all, 
and he stepped away. Now it's up to us. But as we saw last week, and we'll continue seeing this week, that it is God never stopped working. The Holy Spirit groaning with us, helping in our weakness, looking forward to our future glory. Christ as the mediator, he's constantly mediating for us at the right hand of the Father. And this week, I mean, in that, it's guaranteeing our future glorification. Now, as we've been in this chapter for several weeks, the, uh, the focus has all been about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. And that's what we've seen thus far in chapter 8. But we're going to see a shift. The rest of this chapter really focuses on God the Father and God the Father's work within his creation. And this verse here will begin to open up what is this great doctrine that is referred to as the providence of God. And now just kind of for a working definition, I, I, I went to um, Grudem's Systematic Theology just to find a short, um, this is a real handy uh, systematic theology. It's not designed to read all at one time, but the, he, what, he, what he'll do is he begins a topic, he'll give you a short definition, which is very helpful. So he defines the providence of God in this way. It is God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill his purpose. So in that we see that God is continually working. Everything is working exactly the way he has designed it to fulfill his purpose. And hopefully over the next couple of weeks, we will really begin to unpack this glorious truth and, and some mysteries that we'll never fully understand, but begin to see how it is that God is working through all of these things. I've titled this uh, sermon, it's the, the Affirmation of Providence, and there's six main points. It's assurance, that'll be the we know in this passage. There's faithful those who love God, fullness, all things, in sync, work together, result, the good, marked, those called. Now, if you're a note taker, that's an acronym, affirm, A-F-F-I-R-M. I know some of you really like those. So follow along as we get to those. I'll, I'll, as I get to each point, I'll remind you of where we are, but... Uh, it is uh, just happened to, in, in the Lord's providence, worked out that we could put together a, um, a six points that we could follow along and, and really pull out of this verse. But as we begin, notice that this, this verse uh, begins with and. This is a continued thought. This is Paul continuing on his teaching. And if we were to, um, if we were to back up and go to... Um, <clears throat> Verse 22, or actually, sorry, verse 26, for where it says, likewise, he's continuing that thought. We can go back to verse 22, where he says four. We can go back to verse 17, or I mean 18 and four. This is all a continued thought. So this is a continued teaching by Paul. He's continuing the same thought. And the same thought is the assurance of eternal salvation rests squarely in the hands of the triune God, the Spirit, the Son, 
and the Father. And that is the thought that we continue as, as we begin in this verse. So our first point we're going to look at is, the, is assurance. This is the we know in this passage. So the two words here express that the believer's absolute certainty and eternal security. We know. This is the assurance of a Christian. Paul is not expressing personal opinion. He is stating flawless truths that we find throughout God's word. As believers in Christ, we know beyond any doubt that every facet of our lives is in God's control. And it will be divinely used by the Lord to manifest his own glory and to work out our ultimate blessing or glorification. A couple of things I want to note here. It doesn't say we feel. Not everything feels good to us. The loss of a loved one does not feel good. The loss of a job does not feel good. Persecution. I'm sure if we were to ask Paul, did your 39 lashes feel good? No. Didn't. It doesn't say we feel. Never trust your feelings. Alistair Begg has a great little... um, a great little, there's a little video clip of him. He's visiting a church and the the worship leader gets up and says, how do y'all feel this morning? He's like, well, I feel pretty terrible. My kids are brats. My wife's complaining. I kick the dog. Tell me what I know. I need truth. Tell me what is true because my feelings are terrible. Don't trust yourself. So it doesn't say we feel. This is truth. This is we know. So tell me what it, Paul is telling us what I know, what we know as believers. Nor does this say we see. Because we do not see the invisible providence of God, how he is working all things out. We don't see it. I mean, we, we have a very limited perspective in our lives. We, there are times that we can look back on our life and we can kind of get a glimpse of how, how he has worked through that, but we can never fully understand and see. But it says, we know this is true. <clears throat> and sadly, many Christians throughout church history have refused to believe God guarantees the believer's eternal security. They refuse to believe this, this we know. And this leads to belief that salvation is this cooperative effort, which is known as a, a synergistic or it's cooperative between man and God um, that the, it, that salvation comes about by God and man. And God will not fail, but what about us? When we start putting stuff on us, we will fail. Ultimately, we are going to fail. And this causes a great sense of insecurity and doubt. Um, you can see it in, you know, there's this, there has to be a continual state of repentance that that, that if you were to die before you actually repented of this sin you committed just now, then there was no eternal security in that. And this is, it's, it's, it's easy to get caught up in because when we look at the mystery of salvation, salvation is by God alone, but there is a human response. And it becomes to where our response is equal to God's, and that's not so. <clears throat> salvation by God alone is this monergistic it leads to confidence that salvation is secure because God will not fail. 
Paul understands this. He knows this. This is the truth he is conveying to us. That it, the truth of eternal security is revealed by God to us. So as believers, we are able to say, we are able to have this hope as a reality if we just simply take God at his word. If we trust his word. This is true. This is true. We know. As God's children, we are never to fear being cast out or fear losing citizenship, citizenship in his eternal kingdom. If you are truly a believer of his, these things you cannot lose because they are in God's hands. Our assurance is found in the truth of God's word that he has given to us. And we can confidently say we know because God has said it. The next point I want us to see is it's faithful. And the faithful here is those who love God. Now, depending on your translation, this may seem a little out of order. And I promise I didn't do it just to make the acronym work because there's two F's. So I could have swapped it around. And the reason being is because in the original language, it would have actually read like this. We know to them that love God. So staying true to the original language, this is kind of what we want to look at this. So the ones that know are the ones that love God. So that's the we. The we in the verse are those that love God. Um, those for whom this is true, that God is working everything for the good, are those that love him. The recipients of his eternal assurance are true believers in Christ. These are true believers. And nothing characterizes a true believer more than genuine love for God. The redeemed, the regenerated, born again, repentant people love the gracious God that has saved them. The natural man, in our natural state, we cannot love him. We hate him, in fact. The book of James, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, it says that those that love God are promised the Lord's eternal crown of life. Paul refers to Christians as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, an in, with love incorruptible, Ephesians 6. Saving faith involves much more than just acknowledging God, though. In James, in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, do you, believe in God? you believe God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So true faith, ones that truly love God, is more than just acknowledging God. True faith involves surrendering our sinful self to God for forgiveness and receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Coming to Jesus in repentance and belief in him and his work. Looking to him. And the first mark of saving faith is love for God. It is not by accident that when Paul lays out the fruits of the Spirit, love comes first. Our love will not be perfect and love is deeper than a feeling. It will not be perfect, but it will be manifest in our lives. Most of us are here this morning because we love God. There's a lot of other things we could be doing. But we feel that it is important to come here. We might not feel like being here, but we know we are here to offer up his praise, his honor to his glory. And how many times is it we come here and not feel like it, but we leave? We know that it was 
the place for us to be. So the next thing we'll look at is the fullness. This all things. So there's the we know. Those that love God. So the ones that love God know. Now we're going to look at all things. What are the all things here? So the next, the, the next uh, section, the next phrase here. This is the subject of the sentence. This is what the sentence is about. The fullness is all things work together. All things are all inclusive. Good things, bad things, successes, failures, all things. When he says all things, this is what he means. But let's check the context a little bit. If we were to just look around this verse, before it, after it, what are things that are described here? If we go to verse 18, Paul mentions suffering. Verse 22 is groaning. 26, weakness. Verse 35, tribulation, distress, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Verse 36, being put to death. Verse 38, life and death. Everything is included in all things. Not just what we perceive as good. This is truly all things. God is the one controlling all things. And starting in verse 38 or 28, this is all about God the Father. God is the king of all providence, and God is the one behind all things. That's why we get to chapter 11. Paul ends chapter 11 with this phrase, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All things come from God. But this can be... It's going to be hard for us to square up. It's going to be hard for us to, to kind of wrap our minds around. So as we do this, that all things are from God, we've got to remember who is this God. So there are four things I want to point out about God as we look at all things. First is, he is all loving. So whatever is happening to you, it is driven by the one who loves you perfectly. A spouse, a parent will not love you perfectly. We can't. We're imperfect. God loves us perfectly. We can trust God in all circumstances because he is the one that loves us perfectly. Second thing is he is all wise. He knows exactly what is the greatest good for our lives. He's all wise. I mean, there's no better counsel than than his counsel. The third thing is he's all knowing. Nothing ever catches him off guard. Nothing's a surprise. You know, he didn't have to change things up, go to plan B. He knows every circumstance, situation, and everything that is happening. And fourthly, he's all-powerful. He can make it happen. God causes everything to work for the good, for good, and there can be no resistance to it. He can't be overruled, and no obstacle can stop him. So he's all loving, he's all wise, he's all knowing, all powerful, and capable of making the greatest good come to reality in our lives. God will always win. This is, this is the fullness, his providential control of all things. Everything. Which brings us to our next point. This, 
in sync. It's working together. So as he's working everything together, um, it, it, in the Greek, this would be one word. Um, and it can also, it's also translated as cause. So work together and cause, it, it, it's kind of the same word. It, it, it's a verb. Now, there are a few things that are important to know about this verb. And um, you may think I'm getting a little deep in the weeds, but hopefully you'll understand why this is important. First of all, this verb is in the present tense. That's extremely important. That means that every moment of every day, God is working all things together for good. He never stops. It's current right now. This isn't something that he did once and stepped away, as a deist would believe. But he is continually active, constantly working, always on his throne. I was, uh, I was watching a... Uh, a, a live feed from a G3 conference, and I heard a, a pastor I never I never seen him before. He was uh, he's from Trinidad and Tobago, but uh, he was talking about a um, a counseling session he had with a a, a lady in her church, and uh, she made a comment that uh, the king has no pajamas, and he's like, "What is that?" And he's he's like, "He has no pajamas. He doesn't go to sleep." He's never off his throne. And I just thought that was a, a, a great little demonstration. She would say he, never, he, he, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't rest. He doesn't take a break. He's always on his throne. So as his children, he's always working everything together. Present tense. He never stops. And he's causing all things to work together for the good of his children. And this verb is in the active voice, which means he is not passively observing, but he is actively working it together. He's hands-on. And it's in the indicative mood, which means it is a fact. This is not contingent on anything. This is a fact. God is not doing this, or God is doing this, whether we obey or disobey. It doesn't matter. It is a statement of fact. God is taking it all. He knits it all together. Every aspect of all of his creation, he is providentially working everything to his glory and to the eternal good of his children, those who love him. Everything works in sync to his sovereign rule. Next is the result. What is the result of all this? It's for good. Now, if he's always working all things together for good, that should lead us to ask the all-important question. What is good? Is good being financially rich, physically healthy, being socially accepted, professionally successful? For some Christians, yes, this will be true. For others, this will not be so. So if this is the case, what is good? The good is found in verse 29. To become conformed to the image of his son. There is no greater good in our life than to become more like Christ. What God is doing, he is taking the whole mess, all of this world, and he's working it all together to make us more like his son. And, and those of us that, that are a little more seasoned in life, we can look at this and, and, and know that Many times, it's the adversary and suffering in our lives that are most effective in conforming us to him. It's not the good times. It's not the easy times. Um, the prosperity and comfort, those are often the times that we get puffed up. 
it's just just that flesh that 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 uh, you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago we're like a seed and we're it trapped in the flesh until our future glorification but it is the trials that bring humility and Christ likeness this is not saying that all things are good Isaiah 50:20 woe to those who call evil good and good evil the judgment of God is on those that look at evil and call it good. All things are not good. Sin is not good. And this is not saying that God is the author of sin and evil. But what it is saying is that God takes all things, the good, the evil, the trials, tragedies, victories, all these, and he puts them all together for the ultimate outcome of good. This is the good that believers are progressively becoming more like Christ. We can think of it kind of like a, 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 an area rug, a very detailed, maybe a Persian rug or something. When you look at the underside, there's no pattern. Colors are kind of muted. But when you flip it over, there's this intricate and beautiful design. And currently in our life, we see the underside. <laughs> We don't understand what is happening. Every once in a while, we get that little glimpse back that we might be able to see some detail. But God is works all aspects of our lives to make us more like Christ. Stephen Lawson used three simple sentences to help explain this. He said, one, God causes some things. Two, God allows other things. In three, God controls all things. This is why Joseph could say in Genesis 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Or in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Think about it. The most heinous, evil act in all of creation. All of creation. Was God's people turning over his son to be crucified. An innocent man. To be beaten, scourged, hung on a cross, to die. Have the full wrath of God poured out on him. God used that. To bring about the redemption of his people. The most evil and heinous act ever. Man that was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Brought about. The greatest good. That could be. He turned that greatest evil. Into the most glorifying act. The fulfillment of the law of righteousness to bring eternal salvation to his children. What mankind meant for evil, God meant it for the greatest good and the redemption of his children. How does anyone live like this? How do we live this? It is by knowing that all is to our eternal good. That God is working everything in sync to his good pleasure. 
everything that happens in our lives. It is for our eternal good. That's hard to see. It's, it's a hard truth. That's why Paul starts this with we know. Because it's not going to be easy. But we know this to be truth. And the last one I want us to look at is the marked. This is the called. The, marks, the marked are those called according to his good purpose. The called here is referring to all believers. Now, earlier in this verse, um, all believers are referred to as those who love God. And now they're referred to as those called according to his good purpose. The first is from a human perspective. The, the now we're looking at it from the divine, from God's perspective. From our side, we are those who love God. And we know this. We can see a love for God in each other around us. But from God's eternal and divine perspective, we are called by him according to his good purpose. This call, this is the sovereign, internal, effectual call of God that never fails and is always answered. This is a call so powerful it overcomes all human resistance. It is a call that makes us willing to respond in repentance and faith, able to repent and believe. If you watch the video, the young man, he talked about going to church. He'd heard the gospel. He'd heard it. He'd heard it over and over and over. At what point did God call him? It happened to be when he opened a box and read a letter, a note. That is the amazing thing about God. Each and every one of us, our testimony as to when God opened our eyes to the reality of who he is, is different for all of us. And praise be to God, that is the case. Praise be to God for that. The called are those that he calls. And he can't be denied. And it's in this call that is able, that able, enables us to respond to him, to repent and believe. When the people would ask, what do we do we have to, be saved, to have to be, to be saved? Repent and believe. It's repent and believe. God is causing all things to work together for good. Only for those called according to his good purpose. He causes everything to work together for our ultimate good. Now I don't want to labor this point too much because we're really going to get into this more next week as we dive deeper into this. As Paul really opens up this verse in verse 29. And Paul will expand on this eternal purpose that God has. And in fact, next week, it's a pretty controversial verse. I challenge you to read ahead and pray for me as we open up this verse because it is a, uh, it's got glorious truths, but it is a, um, it can be a touchy subject to some people. But as I prepare to close, I I, want to leave us with four questions and four questions that we should ponder on on a pretty regular basis here. The first one is, do you love God? Do you love God? Do, do, do you? Is your love manifest in your life? Can you look back and see choices you've made? 
decisions, things you do, the way you live that reflect that you love him. The second one is, is do you trust him? This is a big one because um, many uh, studies and things you see out there will always, they they always want to go to insecurities and doubts, insecurities and doubts, insecurities and doubts. What do we do with our insecurities and doubts? What did Paul start with? We know. Don't trust your feelings. You're insecure? Absolutely, because salvation cannot be secured by you. What do I do when I doubt? I look to him. Martin Murray McShane, one of the great Puritan, he would say that every look I take at myself, I want to take 10 looks at him. Because security is found in him. We are to look to Christ. Do you trust God? Think about it. Salvation is repentance and belief. Belief is trusting in what he has revealed of himself. Third question. Do you see the invisible hand of God at work in your life? Can you look at the good circumstances, bad circumstances, and see how God is working them all together? Can you do that? This is a great truth to be reminded of, that he is. We know that he is. And it's how do people make it through sufferings? One of the... um, uh, this month, and I know it's big in the military, and I'm pretty sure it is in other places. It's called Perseverance Month. So how do you move on when you've encountered and seen tragedies, and how do you move on? How do you get past it? How do you, how do you mentally do these things? It's knowing that he is the one at work. Whatever I've faced, whatever I have seen, whatever I have dealt with, it is he that is working all this to the eternal good of me because I believe. I am his child. If you're not his child, there's no hope. The fourth question. Do you praise God for the perfect way he has orchestrated the good in your life? Who knows the history of the song, It Is Well With My Soul? I challenge you to go look up the writer of that. For him to write that hymn after everything that happened. I would tell you about it, but I know I wouldn't get it all. Because it's terrible. But he can sing, it is well with my soul. Why? Because he knows, he knew that God was the one who orchestrated all this for his ultimate good. And as believers, this is a truth that we can hold on to. And if we can't, come back to questions. Do I love him? If, I, if you don't, call out to him. One of, one of, my great, one of the greatest little passages in the Gospels in the, is where a, a man is coming to Christ to have his, his, hun, his, his son healed. And um, 
I don't remember exactly how it plays out, but at one point he tells Christ, help me with my unbelief. If you don't believe, call out to him, help with my unbelief. Let me believe, because he is faithful to save. He is faithful to save. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I pray that you would take the truth in this and that you would allow us to cling to these, that we know everything that is happening is under your control, that all of it will ultimately work out to our eternal good and to your eternal glory. Father, Lord, may we rest in this truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.